Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When people think of the plays of Shakespeare, they tend to think of his comedies and tragedies that spotlight interpersonal dynamics like love and jealousy, pretense and reality. But my guests would say that many of Shakespeare's plays, especially his sometimes overlooked histories, are also unmatchable in revealing the dynamics of power. Elliot Cohen is a military historian, political scientist, professor of international studies, and former State Department counselor, as well as the author of The Hollow Crown. Shakespeare and How Leaders Rise, Rule, and Fall. Today on the show, Elliot takes us through what Shakespeare's plays can teach us about navigating the three-part arc of power, acquiring power, exercising power, and losing power. Along the way, we discuss how these lessons in leadership played out in the lives of real-life historical figures as well. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is Shakespeare. All right, Elliot Cohen, welcome to the show. It's uh, good to be with you, Brett. Thanks for having me. So you got a new book out called The Hollow Crown, Shakespeare on How Leaders Rise, Rule, and Fall. Tell us about your background and how did your background lead you to writing a book about what Shakespeare can teach us about power? So it's uh, it's a little bit unusual. I'm not a literature professor or anything like that. I've uh, spent a career in the university world, but also in in government. I'm mainly a military historian, somebody who writes a lot about national security policy, but I've also served in government in the Defense Department during the George H.W. Bush administration, and then in the Department of State in the George W. Bush administration as the counselor. So I was the senior advisor to Secretary Rice and to the rest of the department. And I've done various things in the intelligence community as well. So I'm coming at it from a very different sort of perspective. And the the reason why I decided to write the book is I'd I'd always liked Shakespeare. But the moment that uh, it occurred to me that there was something to do with this was going to see a play of Shakespeare's that's relatively rarely put on, Henry VIII. And in Henry VIII, one of the things that happens is the king's chancellor, Cardinal Wolsey, who's been very powerful and quite arrogant, is suddenly deposed. And if you and your listeners will uh, bear with me, I'll uh, just read what he says in a soliloquy, a speech to the audience, as uh, after he learns out that he's suddenly been stripped of all his titles. 
He says, farewell, a long farewell to all my greatness. This is the state of man. Today he puts forth the tender leaves of hopes, tomorrow blossoms, and bears his blushing honors thick upon him. The third day comes a frost, a killing frost. And when he thinks good easy man, full surely his greatness is ripening, nips his root, and then he falls as I do. I have ventured like little wanton boys that swim on bladders this many summers in a sea of glory, but far beyond my depth. My high-blown pride at length broke under me and now has left me, weary and old with service to the mercy of a rude stream that must forever hide me. And it was uh, it was a very good performance. And I looked at that speech and I thought to myself, you know, I know that guy. As somebody who's been in Washington now for over a generation, for over 35 years, I've seen people who've been swimming on a sea of glory and then all of a sudden their pride burst beneath them and they sink. So it prompted me to begin talking with some of my students at Johns Hopkins who are all graduate students and are going off to careers in government and things like that about some Shakespearean speeches. And that turned into a course and that made me in turn realize that there was a, a different kind of book about Shakespeare to be written, one that really talks about what he has to tell us about leadership. What I love about this book is you show how this idea of Shakespeare exploring power goes beyond just politics. It's applicable to business. I'm sure there's lots of executives who can be like that guy giving the soliloquy. Like I was riding high and then suddenly, you know, the wheel of fortune has turned and now I'm, I'm, I'm out of a job. Or it could be like a, a young person who seems like they've got everything going for them and then suddenly their their fortunes shift. And what do you do with that? How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I'll tell you another thing that motivated me to write the book was I, uh, for a number of years, I was the dean of my division of Johns Hopkins, the School of Advanced International Studies. And uh, so much of that was uh, applicable, of, of what's in Shakespeare was applicable to my own experience. And one of the things that Shakespeare has to teach us is thinking about human organizations as courts. And if you think about it, you know, you don't have to have princes and kings and queens, but in most, most organizations are pretty hierarchical. And at the top, there is a king or a queen. There may be a crown prince, you know, who's the designated successor. There's certainly a whole bunch of courtiers out there. There's often a court jester or two. And what Shakespeare really knew and understood very, very well was the politics of courts. And uh, for sure, you know, when I was at uh, a dean, I had my own kind of, you know, mini court. President of the university had a much bigger court. And it, it affected human relationships. So it's true of business. It's true of universities. It's true of nonprofits. You know, there, there are things that go well beyond people in robes who are wearing crowns on their head. Yeah, and I love that idea that seeing the world through the world of the court, right? There's courts everywhere. It's not just in a king. It can happen in a, a corporation. It can happen in a nonprofit. It can even happen in a restaurant. And so what I love about this book is you highlight how we gain influence, what are the problems of managing our influence, and what happens whenever our influence starts to, to wane. And you also highlight there's a lot of famous leaders from world history who studied Shakespeare to get insights about how to gain power, how to wield it, and how to manage with people trying to overthrow you. What were some of these leaders that you found? So I think the one who uh, would be most interesting to an American audience, of course, would be Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln adored Shakespeare. 
He believed it was better to read it than see it, although he actually did attend a number of plays. One of the things I talk about in the book is he invited a very famous actor who is actually the among other things, a brother of the assassin uh, who eventually killed him, to kind of quiz him about one of his performances. But he, well, the thing that's chilling, I think, is he, he particularly liked the play Macbeth. And uh, if I could read just another short excerpt. That'd be great. He's coming back from a visit to Richmond after the fall of Richmond to the Army of the Potomac. And he's on a steamer and he's coming back to Washington and he's sort of in a reflective mood. And he, of course, has his staff around him and some of his subordinates. And he says, you know, have you, have you read Macbeth? Macbeth is wonderful. And he recites from memory one of his favorite passages. This is after the King Duncan has been killed by Macbeth. And it's actually Macbeth himself saying this. Better be with the dead, whom we to gain our peace have sent to peace, than on the torture of the mind to lie in restless ecstasy. Duncan is in his grave. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. Treason has done his worst, nor steel, nor poison, malice domestic, foreign levy, nothing can touch him further. Now, the, the thing that's chilling about that, of course, is that only five days later, treason did its worst and Lincoln was assassinated. It's a very interesting passage because I think it reveals some of the dark side of Lincoln or the the sort of more melancholy side. You know, it's it's interesting that line that better be with the dead whom we to gain our peace have sent to peace. And I suspect that he spent time thinking about the tremendous human cost of the Civil War. Um, another great Shakespearean was Winston Churchill. It, it's interesting. He uh, There's a lot of his letters which have spontaneous quotes, sometimes from rather obscure plays. There's one from World War I where he's quoting Henry VI, which is a play that most people don't know at all in, uh, in three parts. There's a great story that the uh, great actor Richard Burton used to tell. So after World War II, he's playing Hamlet and uh, he gets word, this is shortly after the war, that the old man is going to be in the audience. Well, when you say the old man in England in uh, 1949, there's only one old man and it was Churchill. So there was Churchill in the front row and Burton describes his horror when he hears this kind of rumbling, and he realizes that Churchill is reciting the speeches even as he's giving them. And he describes trying to speed it up and try to slow it down to shake him off, and he can't shake him off. And so he's, he's thoroughly traumatized by this. The story has a more or less happy ending. He's you know quite shaken. At the intermission, he goes back to his dressing room. There's a knock at the door. And he opens the door, and there's Winston Churchill, who looks at him and says, my Lord Hamlet, may I have use of your washroom, <laughs> which is a great, it's a great story. Now, the, the one thing, though, to be aware of is it wasn't just the good guys who liked Shakespeare. The Nazis liked Shakespeare. And it wasn't just because of Merchant of Venice, which is in many ways an anti-Semitic play, although it's much more than that. There were other plays that really appealed to them. And I think, you know, we have to wrestle with that. And I think it's the reason why that could be the case is because Shakespeare is, as uh, you know, some of the people who've commented on him have said, a mirror to human nature. You know, he's giving us all of human nature. He's not giving us a political point of view, 
He's not telling us what to do. He's showing us people as they really are. And that, I think, is really his genius. And there are, you know, there are aspects of human nature which are pretty ugly and appeal to really ugly people as well. Which plays of Shakespeare explore the idea of power the most? I'm sure everyone's read Romeo and Juliet or A Midsummer's Night Dream when they were in high school. Those plays maybe a little bit talk about power, but what are the ones that you focus on in this book? So there, there are many more. I, I do a lot with the histories. There's really eight plays, believe it or not, that carry you through there. So there's Richard II, which is about a brilliant but very weak king who gets overthrown by Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV. So then you have two Henry IV plays, Henry IV Part One and Part Two. Henry IV's son is Prince Hal, who's a brilliant leader, although I tend to think he's extremely unscrupulous and problematic. So there's a play called Henry V. And then there are three plays called Henry VI, Henry VI Part One, Two, and Three. And Henry VI is Henry V's son, but he's actually a very weak king. So a lot of that is about infighting among courtiers. And then finally, there's Richard III. And Richard III is the ultimate bad guy. He's the evil king, but he's an absolutely fascinating character, which is troubling in many ways. And so you have those eight plays. I would say those those are really at the core, but there are others. There's a, a set of Roman plays, I think Julius Caesar, Coriolanus, which is not put on very much, but which I think is very powerful about a Roman general who is a terrific general. He wants to be consuls or the top job in Rome, and he blows it because he doesn't know how to deal with the people. And he becomes a traitor. So that's a terrific play. There's Antony and Cleopatra. So you have the Roman plays. And then there are some of the great tragedies. And above all, I think Macbeth. Because Macbeth is a story of a, a warrior who is not necessarily innately a bad guy, unlike somebody like Richard III, but who is seduced by power and ends up committing one murder, hopes he can get away with just committing one murder. But of course, he really can't. All right. So what you do in this book is you take readers through a three-part arc of power, acquiring power, exercising power, and losing power. So let's talk about acquiring power, how we get power in the first place. And in Shakespeare's world, you argue there are three ways that a king or a leader can acquire power. It's through inheritance, through their own skill and cunning, or through seizure. There's a coup d'etat or something like that. Let's talk about inheriting power. In which plays does Shakespeare explore the dynamics of inheriting power? I think for the, for the question of inheritance is, in some ways, the best is are the two Henry IV plays, because the two Henry IV plays are only partly about Henry IV. They're really much more about Prince Hal, who is a continual disappointment to his father, although he will turn out to be a greater leader who is hanging around with Falstaff, who's this wonderful comic creation, but who is a you know, somebody who has no illusions about human nature and is a, a coward and a drunkard. And Prince Hal is kind of living in the, uh, the rough side of town at what's pretty clearly a brothel. And he is, he is actually, you know, at first you might think he's just kind of dissolute. Actually, what he's doing is he's learning how to be a leader. Because he, he, unlike his father, he learns how to deal with normal people, people who are not like himself, consumed with this lust for, for glory. 
Now, he also has to you know, achieve success on the battlefield, and he does, particularly he ends up killing uh, Hotspur, Harry Hotspur, who's his leader of the kind of rebellion against his father, and Hotspur is a very attractive figure. And, and I think the point of all that, that that Shakespeare shows us is even if you can inherit power legitimately, I mean, Henry V is the son of Henry IV, and, you know, the way royal succession worked in England at that time is the oldest son becomes the king. What Hal, Prince Hal realizes is he has to earn it. And I think that's a big insight. I think a lot of people don't understand that once you get to a position of power, it, that's not where the story ends. You have to be continually earning it. And Hal is actually able to do that. Other people are not. Somebody who inherits power but doesn't understand that he has to continually win it, as it were, is Richard II, who Henry IV has killed. Richard II is somebody who's intoxicated with the office. You know, if there were corner offices back then, he'd want one. You know, he'd want a limo and all the the trappings of power, but he doesn't know how to use it. And for sure, he doesn't understand that he has to continually win it. And he pays the ultimate price for it. And you talk about how we see the inheritance of power in our own day. This plays out in politics, right? When a president, you know, they often choose their successor. They're going to groom a successor or have, they have a successor in mind. In the business world, sometimes a CEO, once they know they're going to retire, you know, they start grooming their successor and trying to figure out who's going to replace them. But often, even when they have a plan for succession, it doesn't work out the way they planned. Yeah, and you know the uh, I mean the classic example is Jack Welch, famous head of GE, who built it into a huge corporation, very successful, widely regarded as one of the best managers of all time, who prided himself on grooming talent, and he goes through this elaborate process, and he picks Jeffrey Imelt to be the head of GE, and in very short order, GE Imelt blows up GE. Now, people argue, was it his fault or not? But but the point is, you know, leaders often think that they can control the future, that they can control what's going to happen once they've stepped down. That's also the story of King Lear, by the way. He thinks he's going to have all the perks of power, and he'll still exercise control even after he's handed over his kingdom to his two evil daughters. And you know what? You can't. And I think a lot of people wrestle with that. I mean, one of the problems with picking a successor is you have to set your own ego aside and realize, well, maybe, maybe I need somebody who's different than myself. You know, one of Henry IV's problems, and he doesn't really get along with his son just about till he dies, is he can't understand that the ways in which Henry V, Prince Hal, is different from him could actually make him a more effective king. And, you know, he's just disappointed that Prince Hal isn't more like his old man. Uh, and that's, you know, as somebody who's helped raise four kids, I know that's always a bad idea. This idea of inheriting power and how it can go wrong made me think about the relationship between Theodore Roosevelt and Taft. Oh, that's a great, that is a great case. Yeah. So, you know, Roosevelt, he was basically grooming Taft to be his successor. And the thing about Taft was he really didn't want to be president. Like he had high ambitions, 
but he wasn't like Roosevelt who loved to be out making decisions and being out with people and just taking action. Taft was a little more cerebral. He wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. That's where he thought he right. would be most suited. Right. But he kind of got on this conveyor belt and felt this pressure. Well, I got to do this because Roosevelt wants me to do it. My wife wants me to be president. And so he, you know, he becomes president. And Theodore Roosevelt is just basically like, man, Taft is doing a terrible job. And basically yeah. turned against him, and it, it hurt their friendship. Oh, it, and and he, you know he essentially runs against him for uh, for president. No, I think it's a great case because you know what TR is looking for, and I think this frequently happens with people pick their successors, it, subconsciously or not, looking for somebody who's simply going to do what the old, you know, sort of follow the guidelines that the old man set out for him, rather than really carve out his own path in his own way. And they're always disappointed. And the other thing about Taft was Taft was a very able subordinate for TR. And, you know, there there are certain kinds of people in this world who are excellent number twos, but you never want them to be number ones. And I think that's really what happened to TR and to Taft. And it was a uh, it was tra- a tragedy in, in many ways. I mean, they sort of reconciled a bit at the end, but it was really unfortunate. And it wasn't wasn't fair to Taft, and I say that as an admirer of TR, wasn't fair to have picked him, and then it wasn't really fair to have turned on him either. It, it also speaks, again, to how hard it is for powerful people to walk away from power. Yeah. So let's talk about what Shakespeare can teach us about acquiring power through skill. Any plays or a character from Shakespeare's plays that really highlights how through cunning and their own virtue or excellence or skill, you can acquire power? Well, you know, we've been dwelling a lot on the Henry the Fourth plays, but I I would talk about Richard the Second, actually the Richard the Second play, and the figure of Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry the Fourth, who is very cunning in the way that he pushes Richard aside. Now, there's a uh, I've had very lively debates with uh, with critics about you know is Bolingbroke. Did Bolingbroke always want to be king, or is it just that he was treated unjustly by Richard II, who confiscates his father's estates, John of Gaunt? But I think what he does is he's very subtle. He's very restrained in his use of force. Henry Bolingbroke, like Henry IV that he becomes, knows when to be quiet. He knows when to be decisive. He had one of my favorite lines of his is, if these be necessities, let us meet them like necessities, which is a, not a bad motto if you're a leader in difficult times. But he's restrained. He, he does, Unlike somebody like Richard III, he doesn't kill for the joy of killing people. He's not innately cruel. Unlike Macbeth, he doesn't deceive himself into thinking, you know, I can just, I can kill somebody and then I'll be king. He, he is very concerned about legitimacy and you know, his legitimacy is always to some extent in question and he's cunning. And it, it's, you know, there are there are other people who are like that. I mean, it's a dimension of Lincoln, for example, that people I think often overlook. His law partner, Willie Herndon, once said that any man who took Abraham Lincoln for a simple man usually found himself lying on his back in a ditch. You know, there was a lot of subtlety and, you know, a, a certain degree of ruthlessness. I mean, I think that's part of Shakespeare's measure there, too, is you don't acquire power simply by being a nice person. 
Yeah. What you have to do is you have to, I mean, you have to appear nice, right? You have to cloak your ambition and your desire for power through, yeah, I'm a nice guy. I'm trying to do a good cause. I mean, maybe you are doing good, right? In the process, but the ultimate aim is to acquire power. Right. Right. And again, another Willie Herndon quote, he said that Abraham Lincoln's ambition was a little machine that never stopped ticking. You know, the, the kinds of people, and I, and I think Shakespeare's very alive to this. In a certain way, it comes out best in the Roman plays. You know, all, all of us have some level of ambition at, at, in some case, but, but, you know, people who really aspire to top positions, and again, whether it's a CEO or president of a university or president of the United States, that level of ambition makes you very, very different than most normal people. And, you know, the rest of us have to understand that's what those people are like. They're they just different than you and me. And they, in turn, have to understand the people whose support they are trying to get. And the ones who succeed are, you know, the ones who manage to do that. And then you also talk about one thing that Shakespeare touches on, and you see this in the lives of great leaders. You might be skilled in one domain, Say the military. You see this a lot for leaders who did well in the military, and they say, "Well, I'm a great general. I could be. I could be a great president now." And they try their hand at another domain, and they just fumble. They do terrible. Anything Shakespeare can teach us about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the play to look at is Coriolanus, which I mentioned earlier about this Roman general who becomes a traitor, who is a brilliant military leader. And he, he's a great speaker. I mean, his speeches are terrific. They're, they're filled with invective. And, but he has no self-discipline, though, when it comes to talking to the people. And he has no control over his temper. And there comes a moment where he's just won this smashing victory. And even though the people don't really like him because he's kind of sarcastic and rude and rough and contemptuous, and the tribunes, who are sort of the representatives of the people, are fearful that he, he really wants to be a tyrant. They, uh, you know, they have to go along with this until the moment comes when, if, in order for Coriolanus to be elected a consul, he has to show his wounds, take off his toga, and show all of his scars. And he just detonates. You know, he said, I, I'd rather anything than show you my scars, you know, because in his view, this would be pandering to the vulgar curiosity of people who have never been in battle. And it would make it look as if he got those wounds, not for his own honor or glory or sense of duty, but in order to kind of pander to the people and get power. Parenthetically, by the way, I'll just tell you, this is one of the joys of of teaching Shakespeare where I did at the School of Advanced International Studies, a graduate school of international relations. I had a number of students in my class who were in their early 30s, who had served in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya. And I said to them, don't, don't feel obliged to answer this, but when you came back, did anybody ask to see your wounds? By which I meant not physical wounds, but, you know, kind of probe their psyches. And boy, they all detonated. You know, they felt exactly the same emotion that Coriolanus did. Now, they had kept it under better control, I dare say. But it's a it's a very, very human reaction. And I, you know, what, what makes Coriolanus, his fatal flaw is not that he has that kind of instinctive resistance to exposing himself to people, 
but that he doesn't know how to control it. Either to say, look, I won't be consul, you know, I'm not going to stoop that low or kind of grit his teeth and put up with it. And that's really his, his fatal flaw. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents 
to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. Um, so you talk about another way you can acquire power is seizing it. What do you mean by seizing power? Well, I mean, you know, quite literally in the case of Macbeth, it's murder. Uh, he murders King Duncan. But, you know, again, there are, let's not forget there are analogies to this. I, I mean, I won't name the institution. This was a number of years ago. But I know one institution which was led by a not particularly effective leader and one of his key subordinates really plotted against him and was able to convince the board to remove him and then kind of orchestrate things so that he would be put in charge of it. You know, I know another more recent case where somewhat similar kind of thing happens. I mean, you know, there are coups. There are people who will try to undermine somebody in charge with the idea of replacing them either themselves or with a, with a creature. And it's, it's ugly, but it can, it can succeed. And, you know, that's, that's also part of organizational life. Does Shakespeare have any insights on the dangers of acquiring power through seizure or how to navigate that definitely? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, there's a famous passage when Macbeth is thinking about, should he kill Duncan? And he knows it's wrong and he knows it's doubly wrong because he's his guest. But he's thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe I could just do this and then it'll all be over and everything will be okay. And he, he does go ahead with it, even though deep down he knows that one murder will lead to another murder. And I think that's really the key to it that Shakespeare is teaching us, that if you take power that way, the chances are the original crime are not going to be the only crime you're going to have to commit. You're going to have to do other ruthless things. And the illegitimacy of your seizure of power will never go away. Even the case of Henry IV, where I would argue it's more by kind of manipulation because Richard II resigns his crown and he's pressured and so on. But it's, it's not the same thing as simply ordering his murder. He's haunted by this for the rest of his days. And even his son, Hal, is also haunted by this. So I, th- I think that's, you know, w- that's what Shakespeare has to teach us there, that if, if that's how you take power, essentially through some sort of coup d'etat, it, it's not going to end there. It'll be with you for a long time. Yeah, it'll probably, that's how you'll get removed. You know, live by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah, um, absolutely. So once you acquire power, you have to exercise it because that's how you keep your power, right? If you inherit power, you actually have to exercise power so you can earn it. And then you talk about the difference between management and the art of command. What are the differences between the two and what separates leaders who might be good managers from those who are good commanders? 
So let me uh, actually make a kind of a three-part distinction between leadership, command, and management, all of which are critical, by the way, I think. So leadership, well, I would say management. Let's start with management. Management is the art of coordinating human activity. And, you know, obviously, the bigger the organization, the more complex the activity. So let's just think about organizing a picnic, you know, making sure that you, you have all the food ordered and you've reserved the, uh, the place where you're going to do the barbecue and you've arranged for a bus to pick people up. That's the management part of it. Command, which people tend not to think as much about, is about the art of giving authoritative directions. And I mean, the military spends a lot of time thinking about how to issue commands. There are times for any organization where the top person has to say, I need you to do this. But that's actually a more complicated art than you might you might think. But it's like, say, you know, giving directions to the bus driver on the way to the picnic. You just need to tell him where to go and tell him in such a way that he'll get you there with a minimum of fuss. It's not about coordinating human activity. It's about giving clear guidance. Leadership is the art of getting people either to do things they would not otherwise do or getting them to do them better than they otherwise would. So to use the picnic analogy again, it's making sure everybody has a good time. It's making sure that everybody feels included. It's making sure that, you know, the baseball game that you play in the park is not a chore, but it's something that everybody's really enjoying doing and everybody's participating and, and feels good about it. You know, leadership has those three aspects to it. And not everybody is equally good at all three of them. You know, there are people who can be terrifically inspiring, but couldn't organize their way out of a paper bag. There are people who are great at inspiring, but they can't actually give guidance, do this, uh, and so on. So any characters from Shakespeare that help us see this, this, these differences? Well, the, the person who's really all-purpose is Henry V, who can manage things. You know, he, he arranges the pretext for an unjust war in such a way that it's the French who start it, and the kind of moral difficulty associated with it falls on the English church. You know, that, that was an art, that was management. You see him throughout that play giving very direct orders. He knows what he wants people to do, and he knows what he wants people not to do, and he's extremely clear about those things, and effectively so. So, for example, you know, he scares the hell out of the French at this town of Harfleur, but when they surrender, he is very, very clear about, you know, I want the people in the city treated well. I don't want any looting. And it, that's very important. And his instructions are clear. And then he is a great leader. Now, a lot of that, I think, is it's of questionable honesty. So, you know, he gives this very famous speech, which makes everybody sit up straight in their chair. You know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, and so on. Very, very, very famous speech, and gets imitated by everybody from Winston Churchill to Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, does it represent what he really thinks? I don't really think so, because he's you know, the night before he'd been wandering around the camp and he hears the soldiers grumbling and he, you know, he calls them fools and peasants. But when it's on the battlefield, he's calling them my brother and he does it in a way that convinces us, even though we've just heard him describe 
his, his soldiers in a very, very different way the night before. So he's really the, the all-around leader. Henry IV, his father, is a manager, but he's not he doesn't inspire people really, certainly not in the Henry the Fourth plays. He he is very good at giving commands. It's you know that if these be necessities, let us treat them like necessities. You know, in I think plays like uh, Julius Caesar, you see some characters who are tremendously inspiring. And you know, Mark Antony is in this famous scene where he turns the crowd around against the people who've murdered Caesar. But he's not actually great at managing things. The guy who's great at managing things is Octavius, who will eventually become emperor, who's kind of in the background. But it turns out to be much more effective. So it's not clear that, you know, any one of these characteristics is always dominant. There are times and places where one of the three can be much more important than the others. Um, Exercising power often requires manipulation. And this is a, a big reason why people don't like to try to go for power. You know, like, oh, I don't want to do the politics. It feels dirty. Yep. It doesn't make me feel good. But Henry understood to exercise power. He needed to manipulate. So, you know, he believed one thing, but he was willing to give this stirring speech so these you know peasants would fight for him, even though he didn't think much of them. Any other Shakespeare characters who understood that sometimes in order to exercise power, you got to get your hands dirty and maybe manipulate things? Yeah, I, I would say if you look at Julius Caesar and if you look at the plotters against Caesar, the character who actually I have the most sympathy for is Cassius. You know, young Cassius has a lean and hungry look. And people probably remember that line from high school. The Julius Caesar doesn't trust him. Cassius needs to get Brutus to lead the plot against Caesar. And he orchestrates it. And he knows what needs to be done, but he knows he's not an inspiring enough figure to bring other people along. For that, he needs Brutus, who who is flawed because Brutus himself is a kind of a self-righteous, sort of stuck-up kind of character. But there's something about his integrity and about his family's history that causes other people to fall in with him. Cassius orchestrates the conspiracy pretty well. And if Brutus weren't such a dummy, they would have done the thing that would have enabled them to succeed, which is to kill Mark Antony. I mean, Cassius says, we cannot leave Mark Antony alive. You know, it's just too dangerous. And in retrospect, he's completely right. And Brutus, who thinks it's possible to you know, to, to, in a way, he's a little bit like Macbeth. He thinks, okay, we'll just do one murder. We won't even call it a murder. We say we're not going to, you know, it's not worth that we're going to kill him. We're going to carve him up like a sacrifice to the gods, which is self-delusion. And it's a murder. And Cassius understands, you now if you kill Caesar, you got to kill Mark Antony too. So he he's the political manager, I think, par excellence, but he's not the guy who's going to inspire people. And you highlight a modern character who understood that exercising power often requires manipulation, Lyndon B. Johnson. How did he display Shakespearean manipulation to wield power? Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, there, uh, I would refer everybody to the uh, truly incredible Robert Caro biography of him, which I think is now four volumes, which gives it all in chapter and verse. And it, it involved outrageous flattery. 
it involved a certain degree even of physical intimidation. You know, Johnson used his body. He was a big guy. And there are these famous pictures where he's arguing with the publisher of the New York Times, I think, because he, he wants better publicity. And, and if you see the, the time sequence, he's leaning further and further over this, this poor publisher who's leaning further and for, further backwards to get away from him. You know, he, he used his techniques depending on who he was dealing with. He was a manipulator, but he was also a phenomenal listener. And that's actually how he learned how to, what buttons to press with somebody. You know, what do they respond to? What do they need? What are they afraid of? And he would play to both people's strengths and their weaknesses, to their vanity, but also to the values that they had. You know, there's a great novel, one of the great American political novels, uh, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, I think has a picture of a very similar character who is a sort of loosely modeled on Huey Long, but who's also a fantastic manipulator of people. You, you have to have a certain kind of thoroughgoing understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of human nature and be willing to suppress your own ego enough to figure out what's going on with the other guy and then to work with it. Yeah, it takes a in- certain instinct. I think part of it's innate and then you can develop it. But yeah, some people have it more than others for sure. Yeah, and I, I think, by the way, I think the great authoritarians, and I mean great in the sense of successful, not great in any moral sense, uh, usually have, uh, if you look at it closely, a, an almost feral instinct for people's weaknesses, not for their strengths. They know how to appeal to the things that people are afraid of or intimidated by or worried about. And they can often just sense that in a way that it's, you know, it's almost like a kind of an animal sense. Well, let's talk about how leaders can lose power. I mean, you talk about one of the ways that Shakespeare explores that leaders lose power is through just arrogance or being naive. Any plays or characters that stand out the most for that way? Yeah, well, you know, actually in all of the plays I've talked about where somebody's deposed, whether it's Julius Caesar or Duncan or Richard II, they all have deep flaws that cause them to lose power. With with Duncan, it's a kind of innocence which might be charming if he weren't king, where he's he is just very, very naive about the people he's he's working with. With Richard II, it's his intoxication with his own position. With Julius Caesar, it's arrogance. It's just it's you know unbelievable arrogance. He 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 you know he comes in first he's talking about himself in the third person, which is usually a sign that you got a problem. But then he says, I'm as constant as the Northern Star. I'm not like the rest of you who change. I am unchanging. And, you know, I am not afraid. And fear is afraid of me. I mean, it, it's it's over the top. And, and he pays for it. And I have to say, the longer, the more experience I have of life and of seeing political and military leaders in various settings. It's arrogance, I think, that does people in most. How does that play out? Are they just, they, they're so high on their own supply that they're ignoring the things going on behind the scenes? Like people are starting to resent them and those resentful people start thinking, let's get this guy out of here. Yeah, they, uh, they lose a sense of their own fallibility. They have excessive confidence in their ability to master any kind of difficult situation. They forget that you need allies and friends. 
they forget that they too can be surprised. So leaders tend to, if they're not careful, they can start deceiving themselves and thinking they're absolutely, absolutely. they're almost and, magical. Yes, and I have a chapter, as, as you'll recall, about magic and self-deception. And I, so one of the characters I talk about there is in Henry the Sixth, Part One. And I, I really encourage people to read the Henry the Sixth plays; they're wonderful. I talk about Joan of Arc. She's shown as being very successful, but the thing that's so striking about it, if you look closely at her successes, Shakespeare gives you everything to understand that her successes are because she's smart or because she persuades people this is the right thing to do or she uses a certain kind of military ruse of one sort or another that, that brings her success. It's when she begins to believe in her own magic, you know, when she begins conjuring up spirits, that's the point where actually she fails. And she ends up being burned at the stake. Nobody has real magical powers. And and in, even in Shakespeare, you know, there are witches and ghosts and stuff like that. But if you look closely at how he describes them, all they're doing is they're playing to your weaknesses. They're playing to what you want to believe about yourself. So like Macbeth confronts the, the people say three witches. They're actually the, the three weird sisters, which is an interesting term. And all they do is they say things that are completely true, but are easy for Macbeth to interpret in such a way that it reinforces what he wants to believe. And, you know, they turn out to be wrong. Are there any Shakespearean leaders who just walk away from power gracefully? Most of the ones we've been talking about, they were deposed. They had their power taken away from them uh, against their will. Any ones who just said, I'm done, I'm, I'm passing the torch? So the, the one who uh, I think is most moving is Prospero in uh, Tempest. So in the Tempest, Prospero had been the Duke of Milan, but he's deposed by his brother because he's, he's spent too much time in his library. He's a magician, and he's, uh, he's, he's been marooned on this uh, desert island with his daughter. And finally, his enemies all kind of are within his grasp, and he causes the storm, and there's a shipwreck, and various things, and there's sort of a reconciliation at the end. But Prospero, who has undoubted magical powers, he can call up storms and spirits and stuff like that. At the very end of the play, he says that I'm going to break my staff, my magic wand, and bury it several fathoms deep, and deeper than did plummet ever sound, drown my book, his book of magic spells. And it's interesting. Why is he going to do that? He's, he's been restored as Duke of Milan. Why should he give up his magical powers? And I think the, the answer that Shakespeare gives us is that Prospero has grown. And there's a hint that he already sort of has begun to understand this at the beginning. Very beginning of the play, he's going to explain to his daughter, how do we end up here? And he uh, says, help me take off my magic robe, which means that he understands two things. One, if he's going to talk to his daughter as a father talks to a daughter rather than as a you know magician with superpowers talks to somebody's responsible for he's got to take off the magic robe and and he needs help actually he can't just take it off on his own and i think that's what happens to him at the end he 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 understands the power has not been good for him and if you look at how he even treats caliban who's this sort of semi-human slave that he has who at the beginning he's quite brutal towards at the end, he said, he acknowledges to the king, who's one of the people who's been shipwrecked, he says, you know, yeah, this guy belongs to me and I'm responsible for him. 
it, and he humanizes himself. And it's not that he's happy because he says, you know, I'm going to go back and every third thought is going to be of death. But he has become a human figure and he's a more likable, more reasonable kind of figure. And then in the book, what I then do is I talk about other people who walk off the stage of whom the most impressive is George Washington, who really does it twice. Once as commander in chief, after the when he hands his, makes a big point of handing his commission back to the Continental Congress, which he didn't have to do. And then when he steps down as president. And, you know, George III, who didn't have any particular reason to love George Washington, said, you know, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man of the age, which he was. You know, he, he and, it's, and, and like Prospero, it's not that he was happy at the end of his presidency. It had been a really difficult time. But, but he did the right thing and he left with a certain kind of contentment and wholeness, which can only happen, I think, if you voluntarily relinquish power. Any advice you have for people about walking away from power, right? This could be, you know, your uh, executive position at a business or maybe a nonprofit, or you could be a dean at a university or, or whatever. Because you've seen this firsthand with really powerful people, and they're in that position where their power is waning, their influence is waning, and they're just really graspy. Like they just want to hold on to it. It just yeah. seems like it's miserable. It seems kind of pitiful. It, it, it often it often is quite pitiful. So, so people who are successful at you know, just kind of walking away with some dignity and and the like, what do they do differently? Well, it comes from the the inside, obviously, and some ability to be introspective. I think for for those people who are not towering figures, one thing that helps is if you have a very strong relationship with somebody who will be honest with you. And, you know, Churchill had that with his wife, Clementine. People don't always have that person, but that's that's one thing. But the other thing is to remind yourself that you are not indispensable. You know, somebody once said, the, I think it was Charles de Gaulle, said the uh, cemeteries are filled with indispensable men. And you got to keep on telling yourself that. You know, the ancients, of course, were there before us in all this. The, you know, famously, when the great general had a triumph in Rome, they'd have a slave riding in the chariot with him, whispering, sick transit, Gloria Monday. This is the way that the glories of the world pass. So I think that is another part of it. But but I think it's, you know, maybe it just comes from understanding that th this is part of your job too. You know, your job, whatever your job is, whatever your leadership job is, it has many components. It includes inspiring people. It may be building something. It may be eliminating something or destroying something. And ending it well is also part of your job. And if you can't find somebody else to tell you that, you need to tell yourself that. Yeah. You need to read some Shakespeare. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's always good to read Shakespeare. <laughs> well, Elliot, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Hopefully they'll, they'll want to buy the book and it's for sale you know, on uh, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and hopefully in a decent bookstore. For other things that I've written, again, you know, what I would do is just look at some of my books. I'm, I'm retiring from Johns Hopkins University. I've moved over to the center for strategic and international studies. But I think if people are particularly interested in this question of leadership, they may want to look at a, a book of mine called Supreme Command, Soldiers, Statesmen, and Leadership in Wartime. And it's built around a study of four great civilian wartime leaders, 
Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, George Clemenceau, the premier of France during World War I, Winston Churchill, obviously Britain in World War II, and David Ben-Gurion, the founding prime minister of Israel. And it, it asked, what is it that they did? What, what was the nature of the leadership that they exerted? And I think people might be interested in delving into that because I, I do talk more about leadership there. Fantastic. Well, Elliot Cohen, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure for me too. My guest here is Elliot Cohen. He's the author of the book, The Hollow Crown. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash Shakespeare, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. And while you're there, sign up for a newsletter. We get a daily option, a weekly option. They're both free. It's the best way to keep on top of what's going on at AOM. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on the podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you time to listen to AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.